Uh, Our reading this morning is in Numbers chapter 20. If you're following in the Pew Bibles, that's page 157. Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. Uh, Over these months, we've been listening to our missionaries uh, leading us and and reading. And so today, Colin Jenkins uh, down in County Cork with the uh, Siemens mission there, he's going to be leading us in reading from Numbers chapter 20. We just watch the screen uh, uh, as we read. Good morning, everyone, and greetings from us all here in Cork. I'm in the port at the moment. This morning's Bible reading is taken from Numbers chapter 20, Water from the Rock, Numbers 20, uh, verse 1 to 13. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take this staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. Amen. And we pray that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Love from all of us in Cork. Bye. Good to hear from Colin, and uh, he'll be up with us, uh, God willing, at the end of February for our mission weekend. Today we come to the final talk in our series on numbers. Uh, We've been in this book since October, how time flies when you're enjoying yourself. And today uh, we're going to be finishing off uh, this book, a book that has many lessons for us. Uh, Sometimes they have been hard lessons. We have likened the Israelites' journey through the desert to our own journey through life. On this side of the new heaven and new earth, our promised land, there are difficulties, there are obstacles, there are challenges, but there are also opportunities, opportunities for God to use us, to bless us, for us to grow in understanding of Him and also in understanding of ourselves. There have been some overarching themes in Numbers, being patient, the seriousness of grumbling and complaining, the need to trust God 
for what he's doing, appreciating his grace, looking forwards in faith. And also there has been various things about what it is to be a good leader. And all of these themes emerge and are contained in our reading today. And we'll be looking at what it means to be a good leader. Although chapter 20 is not near the end of the book of Numbers, there's quite a a number of chapters after this, it does mark a significant uh, new chapter because here the children of Israel are on the cusp of crossing the Jordan. 38, 39 years have passed uh, since the first opportunity that they had to go across uh, when they sent the spies into the land. You will remember that Joshua and Caleb brought the minority report God is with us, we can do this, the land is ours, but the people chose to follow the majority report, which just highlighted the so-called giants in the land and the, uh, the fortresses and the walled cities. And so the people decided not to follow God and decided to turn back. The Lord gave them over to their wishes, and they spent the next 40 years wandering around and around and around. And he said that that generation, that generation that refused to take him on his word, that they would die out and a new generation would be raised up. Chapter 20, as I said, is not near the end of the book, but from here on, they're starting to face into the promised land. But unfortunately, uh, this chapter has some notable deaths. Uh, Miriam, Aaron's sister, Aaron's death, and we will hear also about Moses and the fact that Moses will not see, or he'll see, but he will not get into the promised land. Now, the Bible is very realistic. Uh, Whenever people come to the Bible at first, maybe I'm not quite sure what they expect to read, but sometimes they're surprised, even shocked by the realism uh, and and, and the the detail and the sin that that is explained and displayed in God's Word. It's a very realistic word. But part of it, as as I think Paul says in the New Testament, is that part of this story of the Old Testament and these times is so that we might learn from it, that we might learn and change our behavior. Many years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I came across a short poem by Steve Turner. Uh, And I memorized the poem because it was very, very short. Uh, and also very true. You may have heard it. History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. That's it, by the way. You can see why I learnt it. But it's so true. History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. And this could be written, this poem could be written over the book of Numbers. You see, having something of the wisdom of God means not repeating mistakes, learning from our failures, and changing our behavior. Now, this is a sad chapter because it begins pretty much like a lot of the previous chapters, even though we have moved on 38 years. Roy Gain, in his commentary, says, Numbers 20 skips almost everything that happens during the previous 38 years as unworthy of mention. These are just dull decades of death in the desert. 
four days. And one of the most important deaths was among the leadership with Miriam, Aaron's sister. She too was among the generation that would die and would not see the promised land. She is a reminder that even the best people can fail. She had been involved some time ago with Aaron in criticizing Moses and rebelling against Moses, and she herself had received the consequences of her actions. She had succumbed to pride and to envy and to the pursuit of leadership status for the wrong reasons, and so she would not see the promised land. In Numbers 20, we have this repeated refrain, there is grumbling about being in the desert and what they could have had. In fact, the things that they enjoyed, they forgot about the slavery of Egypt, but they said, we we enjoyed so much in Egypt. Verse 5, I think, is ironic. They talk about the grain, the figs, the grapes, the pomegranates, but these are exactly the things that God had offered to them in the promised land. The past 38 years, they could have been eating these things, but they decided not to follow God's will. Sometimes God hands us over to our desires, even though they are wrong desires. You want this? Okay, I will give it to you. And and through that giving over of us to that, sometimes we learn our lessons, sometimes we don't, but we are slow learners. History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. So often we complain about our lot, but actually... So much of it is because of our own choices, of our own failures, of our own mistakes. Going way back to Adam and Eve, we have this uh, capacity to catastrophize and to blame the other person, to blame everyone else except ourselves. And and our culture at the moment is very much a blame-shifting culture, but so was the Israelite culture. There's that deep rift running through all of humanity, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Is there something going on in our lives? And actually, it's the consequence of our own choice. We need to remember that. Change our behavior. Don't repeat the mistake. Cut off the chain, the link that has been going for generation after generation after generation. Shape a different destiny. Listen, learn. And what is most sad about this particular episode of grumbling and groaning is that Moses becomes wrapped up in it. And the accumulated frustrations of 40 years of leading this grumpy people begins to take its toll. And he explodes in self-righteous anger. Psalm 108, 35 to 36 summarizes it well. By the waters of Meribah, they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. They rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. You know, I have always felt sorry for Moses. He's led this people for 40 years. He was faithful. He was obedient. And yet in this episode, this one episode, he he seems to rage and his anger gets the better of him. But Lord, is, is this not too much? Why? For this one failure is Moses not allowed into the promised land. Does the punishment outweigh the crime? The Lord says that Moses has undermined my holiness. You see, God had asked Moses to speak to the rock. Not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock. 
And, and perhaps in Moses' head, I, I don't know what was in his head, perhaps he was thinking of the previous time back in Exodus where he was asked to strike the rock and the rock gushed forth with water. Maybe, maybe he was so in such a state, he wasn't actually properly listening to what the Lord was saying. The Lord said, speak to the rock. But also, Moses here says, must we bring water from this rock? Was it actually Moses bringing water from the rock? No, it was God. It was the Lord. Moses was exalting himself. There was not a little self-righteousness here. Must we bring water from this rock for you? And so in his anger, he struck the rock, not even once, but twice. Boy, was he angry. We know from earlier incidents in Moses' life that if Moses did have a besetting weakness, it was probably in this area of anger. In, uh, in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 2, uh, his anger led him to killing an Egyptian. And it was after he killed this Egyptian that he had to flee into Midian. And how long was he in Midian? He was there for 40 years before the Lord felt that he was ready for him to choose him to be the leader of his people. So for 40 years until, until he was age 80, he was in the wilderness. There seems to be a weakness at the core of Moses' character, and it has come back to haunt him here another 40 years on. It reflected a lack of trust in the Lord. Did he trust the Lord to provide water just by speaking to the rock? You know, one of the major lessons that I have to keep learning for myself as a leader, and one that I have to keep relearning every year, is that I am not people's savior, that I cannot fix anybody. Sometimes like Moses, we can become frustrated because we want to impose our values, we want to impose our standards, we want to impose our vision on people. And we get frustrated when they don't follow, when they don't do what we want them to do. And Moses was living with this frustration and it was building and it was building and building until he raged and shouted at the people. But we should hand these things over to the Lord. The people of God are well described in the Bible time after time as being like sheep and sometimes sheep are not easily led. But the chief shepherd is Jesus. And sometimes we who are the under shepherds, whether ministers or elders or, or staff or, or, or in any kind of responsibility, we've got to remember that it is the Lord who changes people. It's not us. It's not me. Sometimes we have to defer to the Lord's way and to the Lord's timing. And sometimes we have to defer even to the consequences that the Lord will bring into people's lives. Sometimes the hardest thing for a leader to do is to sit back and let the Lord teach and the Lord lead and the Lord deal with an issue. Yes, he wants us to pray, to persuade, to encourage, to teach well, but ultimately he's the one who changes hearts. And so every year I have to learn this lesson and relearn it because I am a fixer by nature. Many men are fixers. Give us something to fix. But people are complex. And sometimes we have to wait for the Lord to do His work in their soul and in, in their heart. And sometimes they have to be brought to a certain place, usually by the Lord, where they want to be fixed, 
where they want to be led, where they want to be taught. Ian Duguid in his commentary says, remembering that it is the sovereign Lord who is saving and sanctify us, sanctifying us, and it is not we ourselves. This will deliver us from much of our frustration. The Holy Spirit is the one who is responsible for transforming his sheep, and he will do so according to his agenda, not ours. The Holy Spirit bears his fruit in the lives of his people in his season, not ours, so that it may be clearly seen that it is his work, it is entirely of him. We can detract from the Lord's holiness as Moses did by not listening carefully and obeying him, by trying to be our own savior or someone else's savior by allowing anger and frustration to control us. And this applies to all of us, whatever we are, whatever we do. But of course, standards are higher for leaders. Those with greater influence are judged more strictly. And Moses was a person of influence, a significant leader. So things didn't end particularly well for him. But he's not the only leader in the Old Testament where things didn't end well. We think of David, we think of Solomon, we think of probably most of the kings of Israel and Judah. Some of them didn't start well, some of them didn't end well. But God is a God of great patience, he's a God of great grace. And you notice that even though Moses in his anger decided to perform this miracle himself, that God was gracious. He still allowed the water to flow. He struck the rock twice, but still, even though Moses was being disobedient, he allows the water to flow. Further, even though this generation didn't seem to learn from the previous generation and they were still a load of grumblers and complainers, God says, I will this time take them into the promised land. And Moses, I want you to install a new successor, a new leader. You see, God always has a plan. Even where one fails, he's always a step ahead of us. He's always in his gracious purposes working things out. And if you want to turn over to Numbers chapter 27, we will see his plan for Joshua to succeed Moses. So in Numbers chapter 27 and verse 12, this is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, go up this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land I have given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. And Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. 
Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. So as the Israelites are moving onto the the cusp of this new chapter and moving into the promised land, God appoints Eleazar, the son of Aaron, to be the high priest. He appoints Joshua as to be the new leader, the successor to Moses. And he says, I want you then to, to obey what I'm going to do. I want to, you to encourage the people to follow these leaders into the promised land. Now, of course, as we read this, we're saying to ourselves, well, look, we have a better shepherd. We have a better priest. We have a better leader. We have got Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. And when we read passages like this, we are reminded that our King, our rock, is Jesus. In the Old Testament, a number of times, God is described as the rock. Deuteronomy 32 and 4, he is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. Psalm 78 and 35, they remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer. And then there's this wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. So even though Moses didn't see it then, or Aaron, or Eleazar, or Joshua, the rock that was following them in the desert was Jesus, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And despite Moses' feelings, when he was, when he was smiting that rock with all his anger and in all his self-righteousness and in all his fury, he was striking Christ our Savior, the one who took it on his shoulders. All our deliberate sin, all our unintentional sin, all our mistakes, all our feelings, it was put on Christ. He is the rock. And what does Jesus do with all that punishment, with all that smiting, with all that anger, with all those, the pride and the envy and the lust, what does he do with it? Well, like this rock, he gives He gives thirst-quenching water. He gives his life. What a gracious, gracious God we have. He quenches our thirst for worship. He satisfies our souls deep down as no one else can. He is our Savior. He's your Savior. And he says to us today, come to me, come and drink. Drink the water of life. Will you do that today? Will you give your soul to the one who can quench your thirst? He's the shepherd king. 
The other shepherds in the Bible, the other kings, the other priests, they were weak. They were sinful. They failed. I fail. I fall many times. But Jesus never. And he took your sin upon himself on the cross. He took your failings. He took your weakness. He took your anger. And in its place, he gives us his perfection because he's that kind of savior. As we continue to walk through the desert of this land, may you give your life to Jesus Christ. May you follow him. He's the one that can be trusted. Will you do that today before you leave this place? He will never let you down. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you're a gracious, good Father. We thank you that despite our weaknesses, despite our disobedience, despite our besetting sins, we have one, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. All our sin was placed on him. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness, his perfection, his perfect love. Help us, Lord, to listen to your voice, the leading of the shepherd, to live in such a way that we please you with our lives, short as they are here, until that day when you welcome us home and you say, well done, well done. Enter into paradise, the paradise I've been preparing for you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Help us to learn to listen, to obey. And we pray this for our good and for God's glory. And God's people said, Amen.